Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod for another week, proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh, Subway eat fresh. Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels, Christian Jolly once again together to deliver the goods. Plenty on the proverbial plate this week, Jake. We're going to be talking Dockers, Blues, Bombers. Uh, we've got draft expert Chris Dory joining us to touch on the mid-season draft and a little look ahead to the national draft as well. Uh, plenty to get to. Busy episode, but I think we uh, we must ask you how you're feeling. I know. We joked about this on the pod last week, didn't we? We said we were supposed to be back in the office recording in the uh, in the Disney studios there. Um, but but you were a bit sick and then Christian was a bit sick and then I came down with uh, COVID a couple of days after we were joking. Got, got the trifecta. <laughs> so three weeks in a row, one of us has been a bit under the weather. So um, my weekend was a bit average, but I'm feeling pretty good now uh, and I'm ready to talk a bit of footy. And look, to be fair, it was a pretty decent week of footy. There was uh, a wild weekend of results, really. The Sunday Arvo, we had the Blues and the Pies do a bit of a thriller, which has been pretty unusual for them in recent times. Friday night was a cracker between a couple of teams that couldn't be separated on the ladder. Mm. Saturday evening at the G, we will touch on the Dockers and their third term, and and maybe they've laid the foundations that other teams can look at. Uh, but before we get into the main body of the pod, gents, something from the weekend you might have noticed. Christian, welcome to you first of all, and I might throw it to you first. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, maybe not so much something I know. It's just, uh, just thoughts and prayers and sending them out to um, Peter Matera's family. Um, mm, yeah. had a, bit of a heart attack on the weekend. It just got me thinking um, of, yeah, my most favorite player that never played for my team. So most, you know, my favorite player that never played for Carlton. I think it's easily Peter Matera for me growing up that uh, 92 and 94 grand final. I was 11 and 13 years old. Um, and yeah, just watching him run down the wing um, get 20 touches and have running bounces was good enough, but then to yeah. kick five goals at the end of it, just, uh, just dominate. And he was so fun to watch because he was never, and I mean, you can watch Buddy Franklin run around and he has that physique about him and even Bonson Pally. And, uh, you know, back in the days it was, it was Gary Ablett and Wayne Carey up forward and all this. Peter Matera was just a skinny little wingman that just ran around faster than everyone else that just, he had the courage, he had the skill and, um, it was just awesome to watch. So some sad news from the weekend. Hopefully he pulls out uh, all right. But yeah, it just got me thinking, who who would your guys' favourite non-Carlton players be all time? Well, it may surprise you to know that it's not Lockie Neal or Andy Brayshaw. David Mundy? No, the, the player, I, believe it or not, it's a Collingwood player. The player I um, used to love watching most when I was younger was Alan Didak. Fantastic oh. player, freakish, um, and underrated throughout his whole career i thought um one of the best set shots for goal one of the craftiest players inside forward 50 and someone that kind of never really gets spoken about too much anymore just a sort of a forgotten it's funny how you can have a really strong career and just kind of go off into the sunset and sort of be forgotten unless you're kind of in the media or, or just remaining in footy in, in coaching ranks or, or stuff like that you can kind of get glossed over um didact one of the the great players and one of the rare players in the modern era of footy to wear his socks up when he played Jake. Yeah. I know you're big on that. Uh, just like <laughs> you like watching Paddy Dangerfield Took pull them right up to his kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few around. Uh, mine's Lenny Hayes. I, I, I used to love watching Lenny Hayes. I think if you looked at someone who embodied sort of this physical leadership, tackling, doing the dirty work, doing the, the tough stuff, it was Lenny. Uh, and I think he was just one of the more, 
influential leaders and, and during that period when when St Kilda was super successful from you know sort of 2004 to 2012-ish on and off um, he was a mainstay in that Saints lineup and, and was just one of the better players and probably one of the more unheralded players as well I think you look at those sides Stephen Milne, Revolt these kind of guys were the flashy types that got all the recognition but Hayes was doing it week in week out uh, as, as one of those kind of um, you know brawler types Absolutely. Mm. Um, something I noticed. Yes. Uh, I want to give some love to our good friend, uh, Josh Dunkley, who we're going to get him back on the pod soon, but I yes. was just looking we'll at some stats. Yeah. I was just looking at some stats over the weekend and I'm not, I'm not much of a fantasy an AFL fantasy player. So I'm not a hundred percent familiar with how all the scoring works, but, and I know he's had a really strong season, particularly the second half of the first half of the season. His last sort of six, seven games have been really good. But I, I was just looking at the top fantasy scorers this year. Lockie Neal's on top, probably no surprises there. Andy Brayshaw and Josh Dunkley tied second, only six points behind. I thought, gee, he's having a very underrated season, our man. Yeah, he, he is. With- and I was going to say, with Josh Dunkley, he's almost overtaken his teammate, uh, Bonson and Pally, in terms of looking at, statistical wise, he's almost the complete player in terms of rating elite or above average. So I'll use Jack McRae as an example, you know, elite ball winner, uh, above average in a lot of the other things he does, but only average for intercept possessions and average for tackles. So he's okay at him. Mm. Whereas you look at Josh Dunkley, above average for disposals, ball winning, contested possessions, uh, sorry, elite for contested possessions, above average uncontested, uh, above average intercept possessions, above average goals, above average assist, above average score involvements, elite tackles, and above average pressure act. So one of those blokes that has just got every facet of the game. He doesn't need to be the best at any of them. I don't think he rates number one or top five in many stats. I think, sm- I think Smothers, he was number one last year. He might be up there in tackles this year. But again, it's just that the ability to do enough of everything mm. that he's been he's been doing that probably for 20, 30 games now. He's just he's become... You know, I think it was uh, applied to Tom Rockliffe a little bit towards the end of the, at the end of his career. It's just a bit of a stats pig. He can go out and get 30, he can get 10 tackles, or he can get you two goals and uh, a couple of score assists. So, yeah, one of those blokes that just, yeah, has a lot of greens and yellows when we look at his profile for above average and elite ratings. You can also, you can notice his influence as well, Jake. It's not like he's just racking up these stats, Russell Westbrook style. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Darcy Paris style, and I was going to give you a clip for, for a minute there. Uh, no, he's he's been fantastic. I think you made made uh, mention before we started that he's kicked a goal in six or seven straight games, which um, is pretty impressive. I think he's playing obviously the a little of bit his more. Career. Yeah, a little bit more in the forward line. Um, but yeah, Christian nailed it. He just does everything well. He is the he's the Swiss Army knife for the Bulldogs. Something I noticed um, many years ago. Uh, North Melbourne rebranded as the Kangaroos uh, because they wanted to increase the chance of getting fans from outside of, you know, the North Melbourne pocket. And then there was talk of them relocating to Gold Coast and, and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then not long after there was a, a real push back to make it North Melbourne, everything. And so their, their brand was re rejigged and it was North Melbourne and their logo had North on it and all this sort of stuff. And they're always North Melbourne in the broadcasts or NM for short or whatever it might be. Um, just to, to ensure that they've got their own brand. But on uh, Sunday at the Marvel Stadium, on the scoreboard, it said St Kilda, you know, and their logo and their score at whatever time. And then it was Kangaroos. So there was a weird little throwback. And I, I noticed this, a few people on Twitter sort of shouted it out and I, then I kept a close eye on it and it was true, is that 
I don't know why, but the Kangaroos was up on the scoreboard instead of North Melbourne, which is probably not technically correct. And I'm just wondering why that might be. Are they softening them up for a move to Tassie, Jake? I must admit that uh, slipped under the radar for me. I didn't see that one. So mm. North have, little, have famously recently been staunchly North Melbourne. Yeah. If you want they, to no, feel feel the conspiracy fire fire it's a afl owned venue marvels the only <laughs> only afl owned venue so are they called kangaroos anywhere else are they sure. giving them a shove well that's interesting that's something to keep an eye on maybe going forward because was it a, was that, that that was a st kilda home game right it, it was yes so it wasn't their home game being north uh but still i found that very strange considering they're north melbourne uh and st mm. kilda was named as st kilda and if you play west coast there or carlton there it's west coast and carlton well, maybe this is like the Jared Leanett thing. We'll have to keep an eye on the next time they play. <laughs> uh, yeah, but a few people on Twitter had a, a few eyebrows raised and raised mine as well. Mm. Uh, moving into the main agenda of the podcast, like I'd said off the top, wild weekend of results, some, some cracking matches Friday night, um, the 50 or non-50. Jake, very quickly, would you have paid the 50? Uh, the Chad Warner one? No. No yeah, way. Would I. Can't hear it. Um, it's the end of the game. It's not as if it's the end of the third quarter and he's doing that to buy time. He, he thinks yeah. the game's over and yeah, I, I have no issue with it. Discretion, as the AFL said, you're happy with that? Yeah, common sense. Uh, but it was the Dockers, uh, I think, who kind of took everyone's eye the most and their their third term was just unreal. Uh, coming back at the MCG against the Ds, who have just been un- unbelievable for the last sort of 17 games in a row. Uh, to come back from behind and then honestly put them away to a, a tune of, I think it was 38 points in the end, Christian. It was a pretty comprehensive victory. Uh, and it got us thinking about if we can sort of nail down what the Dockers have done well and we can give the other teams out there and, and fans out there a bit of an insight into the blueprint of how to beat the Ds. Uh, so this might be a fun little exercise, but if you come up with anything or notice anything that the Dockers did, which could hold other teams in good stead coming up against Melbourne. Uh yeah, definitely a few things that um, sort of they did extremely well that sort of set them up to win. But I can almost guarantee they didn't plan to be 30 points down at 16-minute mark of the second quarter. So when you talk <laughs> about the blueprint to beat the Ds, it is. It's Just as they drew much, it up. It's very much the second half. Um, it wasn't like they came out and for four quarters just showed us this. But I mean, you know, it was even for up until early in the second quarter. I think Melbourne kicked three or four straight, uh, three or four goals straight quite quickly to get that 30 point lead and then Frio just worked their way back. But I mean, it was almost perfect footy. It was, they, across the second half. So again, even including the last quarter, they had a disposal efficiency of 84%, which is the second highest of any team in a half, in a second half this year. The only team higher was Essendon against Geelong round one. I think we sort of all remember that game is Essendon weren't doing a lot with the ball. So in that game for Essendon, I think they were under, they were about 15 and a half metres per disposal and a kick to, ra- kick to handball ratio of about 1.5 kicks for every handball. So still a few more kicks than handballs, yeah. but a lot of flicking around by hand. What Frio did with their 84% disposal efficiency was they took 17 metres per disposal, uh, which was about the fifth or sixth most of anyone across the second half this, this round. So they used the ball well. They took territory and they had a kick to handball ratio of 2.23. So twice as many kicks as handballs. Handballs are always going to be the number that keeps your kick, uh, your disposal efficiency higher. Yeah. So it was almost perfect kicking for them for the quarter. So it was the ninth highest kick to handball ratio um, across the second half this year. So they really sort of stayed away from the handball. But as I said, they just were able to just to hit the target. So, um, you know, looking at the numbers of at least 80% disposal efficiency, 16 metres, 
uh, gained per disposal and a kick to handball ratio of at least over two. They're the only team to do that in a second half this year. Super noticeable though, wasn't it? Like, yeah, I, it's happened about five it... times in the last six years, but it was. It was just perfect kicking uh, for that second Short half. Short kicks, spreading the field, looking at angles, trying to use the, the, the really wide wings of the MCG. Yep. They were happy to to use the 45 or switch the play and, and stretch Melbourne's defense that was undermanned in fairness when, when Stephen May went down, Jake. Yeah. I think um, spreading the field was the thing I noticed early on in the third quarter because they, it, it was almost like two different teams and I don't know how the, the stats compare to the first half, but the second half, it, it, it looked like a completely different team came out and played with a completely different game style. So, and that was the most remarkable thing, the turnaround. It wasn't like they just, if they just rolled up and Melbourne just looked off for the day, you would say, you know what? Melbourne just had an off game. It was bound to happen. But they were in control of that game. Well, they, that they bullied. Is, that was the more surprising thing. We talk, You talk about actually taking control of the game, Christian, and, you know, plus 60-odd in, in disposals. Smashed Melbourne in clearances. Smashed Melbourne in contested possessions. These are like hallmark Melbourne things that they do so well. Uh, and Frio came to the MCG and, and did them better. Yeah, they, I mean, plus 14 for clearances and a half of football is amazing. Like, to, you probably as a team, um, if you can get, uh, if you can beat Melbourne by about 10 clearances, you're probably going to get at least within two goals margin. You know, you're not going to guarantee to beat them because they set up so well behind the ball. But a lot of the teams that have at least beaten Melbourne by 10 clearances of more have stayed close to Melbourne or, you know, at least haven't been blown out or have won some games. This is only in two quarters of football. Frio were plus 14, 26 to 12. So dominated amount of stoppages. And it just got me thinking back to, and I don't often do this at round 11 of a season, but it got me thinking back to the preseason. We didn't have much. We only had uh, one official uh, Amy series game. And I think everyone else played a practice match, but Carlton beat uh, Melbourne on the, uh, I think it was the Thursday night of the Amy community series. And it was the same thing. It was, it was beat them out, beat them out of clearances and really make sure that these clearances, we get a lot of metres gained and as much score as we can. We don't want to just win the clearance and turn it over. But mm-hmm. what Carlton did was it was a lot more by hand. So it was that Kennedy to Cripps to Chera to like, they were just running in waves together and keeping the ball close and then kicking into the forward line to Mackay or Kerno. Whereas Freo was quite different. They were still a little bit, you know, use of hand where they needed to around the stoppages. But once they got out into space, it was like, all right, we don't want to go too fast. We want to, we want to kick the ball brilliantly, but we don't want to sit there and go backwards and sideways and waste time with it. We need to go carefully, but attackingly as, you know, as, yeah. as forward as we can as possible. Yeah. And they did, as I said, they did it perfectly. And if you talk about just a quick look of game style in the first half, Jake, it kick to handball ratio was almost similar. So they, they were kicking the ball the whole game. It was just that execution really started to work for them in the second half. So is, if they were trying to play that way, and this is kind of twofold in terms of how do you beat Melbourne and can Freo sustain it? But but is it sustainable if that's what they were trying to do, yet they were only able to execute for 50% of that match? And it's why Melbourne's such a good team, because other teams have done it. And we saw Port do it the wrong way. I think it was round four, round five that Friday night. They came out and they just chipped the ball around. They just had 40 more disposals than Melbourne across the first quarter and a half, but were ended up being five goals to zip down because Melbourne just got a quick run on and it sort of got them nowhere. Um, a lot of teams have the, far, like against Melbourne, the mark play on percentage has been the highest across the last two years. So teams, you know, continually trying to take the mark and keep it attacking, whether it's sideways. So there is, there's a clear sort of kick and mark game that's been employed against Melbourne, but 
you know, Frio's the first team to actually get the four points on the scoreboard for, you know, as we spoke about for 17 weeks. So not every team can, um, you know, get the four points or get over the line, but it's clearly is about with Melbourne. You don't want to get sucked into a uh, high handball, high stoppage game where, you know, there's a lot of tackle. Melbourne's just going to bully you out of it. But if you can get the ball out into space on your own terms, and once you get the ball in hand, Again, very similar to Richmond. They'll give you a chance to progress because they're going to back their defenders further down. They're not going to chase you onto the wing or they're not going to put too much pressure on if you're trying to hit a target on the logo um, coming out of half back. But once you turn and go into your forward half, that's when you've got to start executing your kicks and hitting targets, and which is what Frio did. Uh, another aspect to it was we saw that Clayton Oliver had 24 disposals, I think, to halftime, Jake. Um, they then sent the cooler to him, Frio. Uh, James Aish on him. Um, he had 12 possessions for the rest of the game, no score involvements. I, we talk about this a lot on the podcast about just why the tagger isn't used more uh, and how it seems to go out of vogue, back into fashion, and then back out again, when clearly it shows that if you have someone who's capable of putting the clamps on someone, it works. It does. I think most people would probably say that Melbourne's four best or most important players are in, in no particular order, Oliver, Petrarca, Gorn, and May. Well, you kind of said it. Oliver was the best player on the ground for a half when Melbourne were dominating. And then, yeah, he was, I mean, 12 and a half isn't exactly playing poorly. It's still 24 for the game, but he, but that was a step, a bit of a step. A lot of the defensive half as well. Yeah. I think there was a point late in the game where the commentators mentioned that Gorn hadn't taken a contested mark, which was really surprising for him. And he was sort of, outplayed it for fair, fair stretches by Sean Darcy. Stephen May obviously exited the game and Christian Petrarca played maybe his worst game at AFL level, um, certainly since his first or second season. So um, a lot, I'm, I've always said on this podcast and, and, and outside, I'm a big believer in personnel. Mm. When, you're, when your personnel is not having the impact, it's hard to win games. You know, they're, they're, they are the four probably most important players for Melbourne. And they all four of them, for whatever reason, it just wasn't clicking for them on that given day. So clearly there's an element of what Fremantle did really well, but there also must be some sort of element of, of luck. Obviously, Petrarca not having, yeah. <laughs> being in full fitness, um, you know, Gorn not having the influence, whatever, whatever the reason that may be, uh, May goes out of the game. Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's cause, for, cause for concern for the Demons. Like, they had a bad half. It's the first bad half they've really had in you know, whether we say 17 or eight, I can't think of another bad half they've played in, a, in one of the games they, they ended up winning. Mm. Um, it was a shocking half. It wasn't even bad. It was terrible, but I don't, I'm not, I don't sit there thinking, Oh my, Oh my goodness. Now Melbourne, everyone can beat Melbourne. It's, it's just not the case at all. And I think if, if you asked us last week, I don't think any of us were tipping Freo to beat them, but I certainly don't think any of us were tipping Melbourne would go undefeated through the whole season. So That's a good point. Some people say, oh, it's a good thing to lose. I don't necessarily believe that either, but I don't look at it as a catastrophic thing that they lost. Yeah. We talked about May being subbed out. Um, there are a few other um, key backs subbed out throughout the weekend. Carlton, uh, Jacob Wiedering went out. Jeremy McGovern was injured for the West Coast Eagles as well. Um, key players, really important players for this side. You, you look at May, he's one of the best defenders and probably you know, halfway through the year in the All-Australian side. Ditto for Wiedering. Um, Christian, we talk about the influence that you know, a lot of midfielders have or Rucks might have and, and Jake will debate that and, and all these sort of other players. But <laughs> key backs do tend to get a bit underappreciated, especially these kind of guys and, and the influence that they've had this season. And they, they could be missed. Yeah, it's 
when you've got a good key back like these two are, Jacob Wiedering and Stephen May, they're, they're really good one-on-one. Um, and what that allows you to do is it allows you to play Jake Lever or even Carlton's uh, case, it's been Lewis Young a little bit this year, Liam Jones previously in the past, in, in specialised roles for them. So it's almost like one player creates an opportunity for two players to play at their best. Yeah, it's a domino effect. Yeah. Yeah, and we saw with Melbourne last year... Um, and sort of speaking to some people uh, at the club early last year, Adam Tomlinson was a real worry when he went down early because he was going to be, it was going to be Stephen May and Tomlinson would just clamp down on the most dangerous forwards and, and Jake Lever would do what he's want. And then Tomlinson sort of went down with a knee and they thought, well, if we move Lever into the lockdown role or the one-on-one role, we're going to lose the best interceptor in the game is going to get He's going to have to, you know, have his have his attention fifty percent on an opponent, mm. um, which is, you know, sort of not ideal for his role. And they found Harrison Petty, and again, so he was what probably, you know, Harrison Petty was one of the biggest inclusions for Melbourne's premiership last year in terms of just their ability to do everything we planned for in the preseason. We were mm. able to we were able to do once we lost Tomlinson because Petty stood up. Um, yeah, so looking at May and Weedering, it is it's it's their one on one numbers. I think if we go back to last year, Weedering, I think it, you know. He'd lost about one of his first 94 contests. It was one of the best defensive one-on-one seasons we'd seen. Not as great this year. He's lost 30% of defensive one-on-ones, um, but only one of those has actually been a mark conceded. So he's had nine other losses. That might be free kicks or one at ground level, but he's only conceded one mark from his uh, 60-odd contests, I think it was. And Stephen May is the number one player for losing a contest. He only lost uh, one of his oh, – sorry, he's lost two of his contests um, for a 5% loss rate. Um, one of those was a mark and the other one was at ground level, I think. So those two players just to be able to stand next to it, the, not just any guy either, usually the number one scoring forward for the opposition, um, as I said, just brings two or three other people into the game um, around them. Time to bring in a Defenders Award, Jake. They don't get a lot of love, whether it's at the Brownlow, the Coaches Awards. Um, you know, we've got a Coleman medal for, for the, the best forward in the game. Is it, is it time to appreciate the backman a bit more? Oh, there's plenty of awards in the in the game so i don't think one more makes that much difference i'd be for it but how but how do you adjudicate you know what is it if it comes down to the eye test then it's you got everyone arguing over who, over who should win it yeah that's a good point all right well um hit us up on twitter at footy tips if you think there, there should or should not be uh and don't forget keep sending in ask champion data questions you can either tweet us like i said at footy tips or use the hashtag ask champion data We'll try to get some of them read out each week if you have any queries. Uh, speaking of Ask Champion Data, we've had this query in for a few weeks. In fact, Jared Barker, who is going to be writing a, a feature on this, and it's going to be out tomorrow, espn.com.au forward slash AFL. Uh, we asked this last week, Christian, when do players peak? Because the, there's this, you know, commentators, experts, ex-players will all talk about how a player is entering the prime of their, their career or their, you know, he's 27, so he's at the peak of his powers all this sort of stuff. And we thought we would actually look into it a bit more scientifically than just the, as Jake says, the eye test. Uh, and it's taken a while because you've had to put together some data and we've seen the, the charts and the graphs and it's pretty complicated stuff. So thank you for doing the digging. But what did we find out? What have we looked at? Do we look at age? Do we look at games played? What does the data tell us about uh, when a player enters their prime? Yep. So we've looked at uh, age rather than games played just because... Again, a 20-year-old has probably has much chance or exposure to the system as every other 20-year-old, whereas a 60-gamer and another 60-gamer could have been drafted 
five years later than the other. So it sort of skews. Yeah, exactly. Skews at at 60 games. A 31-year-old at 60 games versus a 21-year-old at 60 games is very, very different. But a 21-year-old kid in the system has probably had, you know, whether they've had injuries or been exposed to games or not, they've had the same amount of time around Mm. a footy club. They've had the same amount of time to sort of do all the conditioning and whatever else works. So again, um, yeah, I know Jared's going to sort of deep dive into the numbers. But what we've also done is we we looked at all players and sort of just looking at rating points, like when when do players peak? And the first thing I notice when you look at this, again, we've, we've only included players that at least reached 100 games in their career for any of this data, and it goes back to 2001. So we're using players that actually had a good size career to work out all their average rating points. Um, and again, if you sort of take it at face value, you'd say all players peak at the age of 37. If you wanted to look at what is the highest average... Uh, what's the highest ratings at what age? But it's just ridiculous. It's because the 37-year-olds we've seen was Gary Ablett in one of his years. It's 76 games of 37-year-olds that have played. So whether that's, uh, again, I'd have to go back and find it. It'd be Sean Berger and Gary Ablett. Um, You're not not getting too many average players playing at 37. Yeah, this is 2001, exactly. So you only got your superstars playing at 37. Um, But it is, it's almost like, well, 37-year-olds are better than... 35s and 36s year olds, but it's just a, it's a, an outlier, an anomaly. So again, probably looking at before 31. So is really when a player's career is between 19 and 31 is when most players' careers, you know, are at at their most uh, busiest or play their most games. If you if you're on a list after 31, you've probably already been a star and sort of you're better than the above average player in the or better than the average player in the competition anyway, and that's why you're still on a list. So. Looking at under 30 roles and looking at each position, I've come up with what is the, um, you know, what's the highest rated age for each position. So uh, very similar. So if we start with all players and go to the, go to the end, all players, it's 26 years old. So 10.6 rating points per game for 26-year-olds. Um, and the second highest is a 25-year-old. So you go from 25 into 26 and you're sort of taking that step up. But as I said, different positions have different ages. So a wing is an interesting one, 22. So wingers are actually the youngest peak age we have uh, at 22. Again, my theory on that is probably if you're so good as a winger at 22, you're not playing on the wing by 23, 24, 25. You're probably transitioning into that midfield role or a mid forward or general defender. But you ha- you've got guys that sort of excel on the wing early that get moved off and into other positions. So as they get to that 26 um, years old where most players are peaking it's about the seventh or eighth best year for a winger um, because as I said if you're looking at when players are playing their best on the wing and they're playing their best early and they're probably mm. getting moved out of that position rucks are the complete opposite uh, and we sort of know that 28 years old is when a ruckman peaks so uh, again a 19 year old ruckman 7.3 uh, rating points per game a 21 year old ruckman 8.7 but a 28-year-old Ruckman, 12, 12 rating points per game. So sort of, and, and that's, I've, I've always been big on this. I would, I struggle to see why you spend high picks on Ruckman. Well, I, I can almost guarantee you there's, there's, there's a, a state league Ruckman. Correct. And, and I'm, I'm big about, on that. I'd almost, yeah, yeah and I'm almost always going to look at, all right, every second year, I'm just going to go get myself a 24, 25-year-old Ruckman. I know we're going to miss out on the Nat Nui and the Max Gordon. Might not get the superstar one, but if I can have the eighth best Ruckman playing for me each year, I think I'd be all right. And I think I can find that from 
getting the 25-year-old when... You could when, have the 800th best Ruckman planned for you each week and you still think you'd be all right. Yeah, well, yeah, Ruckman hater here. Um, but, yeah, the other positions, again, mid-forward um, and midfielders, 26. So very similar to the overall age. Uh, key defenders and key forwards, quite surprisingly, the same age, 25. So 25-year-old key forward against a 25-year-old key defender. That's the prime of their matchup. Uh, careers and uh, general defenders are 24 um, and again maybe a little bit with general defenders if you are sort of peak as a general defender at 24 you might have more opportunity of moving into the midfield and uh, getting moved out of it but yeah as I said probably the biggest difference is yeah 22 year old for wingers and 28 year old for Ruckman. So there's obviously looking at the graph and I know this is really great radio but the thing I noticed was that there's a pretty steep upward curve for the first sort of four or five years that players are in a system And then there's maybe a gradual increase from sort of this 23, 24 to 26, 27. uh, And then it starts to gradually decline again. So clearly when it's, it's funny, like you look at players, especially when they're drafted or, you know, they've spent two years in the system and fans are already ready to cast them off and say, Oh no, they're useless. It it does take time for these 18 year olds to develop into mature bodies and, and play at a level that's probably good enough for AFL a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think patience is the uh, biggest value of a lot of the footy industry, is it? So it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, it, it is. It's And again, the, the, the taller the guy, the more patient you've got to be. Anyone over, you know, especially if they're ruck, but anyone over yeah. 195, you'll get, um, as Jake said, a key forward almost averages half as much as a 19-year-old than they do as a 31-year-old. Because it's just, yeah, you, you just, you've got 19 years, like, yeah, you're a fish thrown to the sharks, whereas... Yeah, once you get to 31, again, when you've been in the league that long, you're very good at what you're doing and you've learned all the tricks. You're bigger than everyone else. So, And again, the graphs, yeah, the steady increase, it's also a lot because we did use the 100-game players. So, again, all of these players are getting those first four years under their belt. Again, if you used every single player, it might not be such a natural um, upward tick at that early stage, but it wouldn't be too far off. Again, we, we, we know that most players, 18 to 20, to you know, between 18 to 21, a lot of their time is going to be spent developing in the lower levels. Um, if they're playing a lot of footy, it's usually because they're in a weaker team and they're rebuilding team. Like not a lot of Jake Bowie's come in and play 20, you know, 20 wins for a premiership team straight away. In their to him, by so, the way. Yeah. First loss. I wonder how he's taking it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, we used, again, we use successful players sort of to look at. Yeah. When, when, when do they become the most successful? Yeah. Interesting stuff. It is. And if you want to find out more and, and maybe it will be a bit easier to digest or a bit diff- a bit of a different way to digest it, do check out the website, aspn.com.au forward slash AFL Wednesday morning. That's when it's going to be out, uh, the deep dive that Jared Bark is going to do. So do keep an eye on that. At the National Curriculum, we always say availability is the best ability. That's why the National Curriculum is now available on ESPN, wherever you get your podcasts. No ticker, Nick. No ticker. Hey, as I said off the top, we do have a very special guest joining us, Chris Dorry. He's the AFL draft expert for ESPN. He's been casting his eye over all things mid-season draft, national draft and the like. Chris, good to have you on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. Uh, busy time for you. It's getting busier each year, it seems. There's obviously more draft periods. There's pre-season supplementals. There's national drafts. There's rookie drafts. There's mid-season drafts. Uh, how are you coping, keeping across all the names and numbers uh, as the night progresses? Yeah, it's certainly keeping me very busy. It's not only about covering the best under 18 prospects around the country, but it's also about scouring the state leagues and making sure I'm all across the best talent there too, because ultimately with the mid-season draft, 
you're not taking the best under 18s, but you're actually looking at those who are really, I guess, those who are eligible in years past. Uh, so it is on Wednesday night. So a couple of nights from now, depending on when you are listening to this podcast, uh, can, what we're we going to do? Is- can you tell us what it is? Can yeah. you? Because it's a very new concept, right? Yeah, sure. So basically, it's an opportunity for clubs to fill some pressing list needs. So um, there's slots that are available either based on whether clubs left a list position open um, in readiness for the mid-season draft or whether a player basically won't be available to play any more games, in which case teams can put them on the long-term injury list and open up a slot potentially. Or in the case of a Jordan Roughhead who's retired, well, that also opens up a list spot as well for this period. The interesting thing about this mid-season draft period, I think to me, is the fact that you could be as old as you want, really. There's no sort of age limit on this. It's just whether you want to nominate and whether you think you could be a a good fit for a team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had in, I believe it was 2019, we had Marlon Pickett taken and, of course, debuted on the grand final stage. And he was taken as might have been around a 28-year-old top of mind. So um, there is absolutely no age cap whatsoever. Well, there are definitely a few teams that will have a few spots. There are also a few teams that don't have any spots. So not every team will be able to pick someone on Wednesday night, but we thought we'd get you on just to kind of run through some of the names more likely to get selected, uh, the type of role they might be able to play and, and the clubs that may be in line to select them. So I don't know how you want to do this. Do you have a, a list of sort of five, six, seven or eight that you want to go through and, and, and check them off? But uh, who's most likely, I guess, to get picked first off, first cab off the rank? Because it's going to be, the Eagles, because it's based on the current ladder structure? Yeah, so it's reverse ladder order. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got a list of eight who I be- believe are highly likely to be- get picked or I consider to be amongst the most likely. So, um, Jai Cully, um, if West Coast don't pick him, I believe he'll be certainly one of the very first taken. So, he's someone where he's that almost key position height, but he's got among the best skills really available and just such an impactful player wherever you put him. So, um, he's my favourite player in this period. Um, you've got Josh Carmichael, who's a um, strong, big-bodied mid from the Sandful, who's really been dominating up there, hitting the scoreboard. So he's very exciting. Casey Voss, the son of Michael, um, really good defender. He was quite unlucky, I felt, last year not to um, get drafted. But he's I remember you were, you were very hot on him year. last year ahead of the draft. What happened? Yeah, just um, look, he was no doubt looked at by clubs, but ultimately um, it's really about clubs taking who they think is the best player available at their pick. And um, of course with boss, he just wasn't considered that very best or most appealing option at that given pick. So, so he's, he's only young. He must be only 19 then. Um, no. So he's in his early twenties. So I believe top of mind, he'd be 22 at this time. So he's had a few years in the sandful, but really has shown that year on year development. And he's really got all the tools where um, not only is he strong defensively, but he's got those intercepting components. He's got the skills. So really good ball user out of defense. We, we obviously don't have any type of father son uh, <laughs> sort of comes into play with the mid season draft, do we? Sadly not. So, um, but yeah, look, um, Brisbane wouldn't have a pick anyway, so um, uh, that wouldn't be an option. But there is oh, no, no, there is no, no summer. summer. <laughs> and there's also no um, next-gen academy, so um, that's also something there else to are. be aware of. Uh, yeah, keep, keep going down the list. Who else do you think uh, yep. is, is someone to keep an eye on? Sure. So I've got Max Ramsden. So he's been a really appealing ruck in the NAB League in the early rounds. So he's that sort of 18, 19-year-old. And, um, yeah, look, he was tucked away in recent years just playing private school footy. And, yeah, this year in the NAB League, he's played really well as that sort of athletic, very mobile ruck. So, um, yeah, he'll be probably one of the very sort of first few picked. Um, we've got Massimo, and I'll butcher the pronunciation here, but um, D'Ambrosio. So really good ball user from defence, just that really high-level accumulator. 
Um, yeah, he's just been playing really good footy this year in the NAB League and then also in the um, Vic Country, Vic Metro sort of practice. those. Have some of these players really come out of nowhere, so to speak? Like, are there, are there players here that you probably didn't know too much about 12 to 24 months ago? Um, yeah, to a degree. So uh, Josh Carmichael, um, he wasn't playing in the Sandfall last year. Um, Jai Cully for me, look, he wasn't one I necessarily had on the radar here. He's a big time sort of improver. So um, you do get these sort of names. Uh, Ramson, well, he was playing private school footy. I haven't really mm. had the chance mm. recent years to see that. So um, yeah, that is certainly the case. Doing, doing a bit of reading on someone like D'Ambrosio, uh, I saw that he's, he's quite short and we often find that, that short players, especially in those kind of skill positions in the midfield, sometimes do get overlooked and you just need to put a bit of body, a body of work together in a, in a lower league to maybe get on the radar and, and, and potentially get your name called out at, at something called something like the mid-season draft. But the shorter yes. players are better ball users. Always hey, Caleb Daniel. Yeah, Caleb Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, you've got an Adam Sard at that sort of similar height. So um, a D'Ambrosio, look, he's probably best across halfback and push up onto a wing as well. But um, yeah, just has those fantastic skills. He can intercept, strong one-on-one, good aerially. So being able to play that little bit taller than his height is one where I think there's quite an appeal there to mm. um, AFL clubs really looking for that rebound and drive off halfback. So you've run through a few names. Uh, the Eagles are in desperate need of literally anyone. I could probably walk off the street uh, and walk onto Optus Stadium if I really wanted to. Uh, maybe not right now, but uh, you know, give me a few weeks of preparation. And we'll see how once, we once you once you recover from COVID. <laughs> once I've once I've uh, got the breathing capacity going again. Uh, who are they most likely to pick? You said that there are a couple of names that are likely to go very early. Uh, do you have a, a name in mind for for West Coast and, and fans can look towards something? Sure. So it's looking likely to be out of Jai Cully and Max Ramsden. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's that sort of, I guess, versatile, impactful utility. A Cully you could almost think of as maybe a Goddard with that sort of almost, he's probably more of a forward of center type, but he has that same sort of versatility and impact. Given, you just said it before, Matt, but given where West Coast is right now, are they like, they're not in a position to just plug any kind of hole. They're just looking to take the best player available. Is that is that a fair thing to say? I would say so, yeah, because they've got needs across the field. They've really got a lack of really good youth where their better players are really amongst those really older players within their playing group. So it's really important in a West Coast situation to take that best player and really look to build that sort of long-term core. And with Akali, I look at him as someone where if I was to do my own power rankings for this next month, I'd be considering him even as high as top 10. So yeah, right. um, I really quite highly rate him. So uh, we saw the blues are in dire need of a, a key back and, oh. and they're just sort of hanging on to the, the cusp of the top four at the moment. I think they might just be just outside it. Just um, Jacob Wiedering's now gone, gone down. Are there any key position defenders that are likely to get picked up and could fill a hole for the blues? There are a couple that could be considered, although one, I guess, gripe that I have with the key defenders in this mid-season draft period is actually my two sort of preferred key defenders that I'd like to be available aren't. So yeah. Blake Slenslog hasn't nominated, and I'd also say Caden Brand would be that sort of, I guess, best performed. Brand. So, any yep, any reason why they wouldn't nominate? Um, they just out of belief they wouldn't get drafted would be the most likely case or in a, in the case. But of isn't that like saying you got to have a ticket in a, in the lotto to win, right? Like why yeah. you yeah, got to give yourself a chance. And look, some may also just choose to really, they're happy with their lives. They're happy with what they're doing. They might not want to up and leave to another state potentially in that sort of mid-year period. So it might not be convenient. So it doesn't work in everyone's situation. Fair enough. Uh, off the top of your head, how many have nominated for the mid-season draft? Hope I'm not throwing you under the bus for this one. <laughs> 
That's all right. Um, there's less than there has been in the past. I believe yeah. it's 200 plus. I have seen the full list, but it is less than has nominated in the there past. Well, there's that, quite that, a I few mean, that, that must, I really like that. Um, must make sense given they're probably going to be what likely less fewer than 20 picked, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you don't yeah. feel like you're half a chance. Um, thanks for thanks for coming on, Chris, and, and having a chat about the mid-season draft. Before we do let you go, looking forward to the, the national draft. There's a couple of big names uh, that are, are really worth keeping an eye on in sort of the back half of the season, uh, especially for clubs sort of down in the lower echelons of the ladder. There's another father-son name, though, uh, that's that's keeps cropping up as sort of a potential number one pick. What can you tell us about Will Ashcroft? Sure. So um, he's probably the most complete and well-rounded player, I'd say, in this draft pool, and he's the most really advanced midfielder. So he's got the accumulation. He does have the ball winning, but he's got that real burst of speed as well. So... Um, he plays a bit like I'd say a former number one draft pick in uh, Mark Murphy. So mm. there's some similarities there. So I'm not necessarily seeing up the top end of the draft, those, I guess, future superstars necessarily, but he could have that sort of Mark Murphy tier tile type yeah, sort of it's player. Interesting. You don't often hear players for, for a player that's played so many games and was a good player for a long time. You don't hear many prospects come through compared to Mark Murphy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and look, he's not that sort of super tall midfielder where he'd be that roughly top of mind around 180. So similar sort of, I guess, height and stature to a Murphy. But yeah, just has that similar sort of burst to what a Murphy did early in his career. And look, he'll rack it up and be a a very good midfielder without necessarily being that sort of top five in the competition level would be my projection at this stage. Um, Before we wrap things up, uh, a few other names to keep an eye on the national draft ahead ahead of that when it comes around in November. Sure. So for 10 names quickly, just for people to track during the under 18 champs, um, there's four Victorians that I'd say to definitely look out for. Um, Two from Sandy, we've got Ashcroft, who we've already covered, and Harry Sheasel, who is a very talented forward. Um, Two from Oakley, we've got two midfielders in George Wardlaw and Elijah Sattis. There's four that I really like from South Australia. We've got two key forwards in Tom Scully and Harry Lemmy, who I think are the best two tolls in the draft. Hang on, Tom Scully. Different. Hasn't he already yeah. gone number one, one once upon a time? Hasn't he yeah, already so missed this one... about five seasons through injury? <laughs> yeah, yeah. this one, he resembles more of a Max King in terms of stylistically the capabilities where just that super tall, strong marking key forwards. Right. So um, yeah, like him a lot, really improved dramatically. This I year. feel like just quickly, Very I good. feel like we've got in the last couple of years, maybe the last three or four years, we've had a lot of key forwards, a lot of promising lot of key 200 forwards. centimeter key forwards, Jake. Mm. They're just getting taller and taller yeah. and they keep, maybe that's what it is. The yeah. yeah. They're getting taller and they've got that more, I guess you could describe it as unicorn capabilities where they can do things at heights we've never seen before that basically you'd get from midfielders so mm. you could get a sam darcy at now i think is about 207 centimeters where he really sort of almost moves feels a bit like a midfielder in some mm. respects so unreal um it's just the way they're sort of being developed these days so it's really good how they're multi-positional uh, and a few more names before we uh yeah. like i said wrap things up Sure. Um, and the two others I really like from South Australia, we've got um, Matthias Filippo as a really, I guess, tall sort of mid forward. So it has a bit of a Marcus Bontempelli to him. So he's one I'm really excited about. And I think others should be, I guess, a bit more hyped about than they are probably at this stage mm-hmm. in the recruiting community. Um, Kobe Ryan, um, he's really stood up in recent weeks to stand for league level and being terrific through the midfield. And two quickly from um, Western Australia, we've got Elijah Hewitt, who's a really good midfielder, and then Jackson Broadbent as a ruckman who has a December birthday, but he's already very advanced and playing really good footy. So another exciting name there. There we are. Excellent stuff. Chris, like I said, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We'll have you on the pod again closer to potentially the national draft or some other little bits and pieces that are coming up later in the year, but we uh, do appreciate your time as always. 
Thanks for having me. Christian, having listened to that, um, and thanks again to Chris Dory for joining us. Obviously, players, sorry, obviously clubs are looking outside of their current list uh, for, for replacements or for top-up players or for someone who can can add something to their to their playing group in the second half of the season. But you were saying before we jumped on the pod that there are some clubs that just need to look into their own backyard and currently playing in the state leagues uh, who are on a list already, who just might not be getting the opportunity. And, and you've got a few names that you think might be able to make an impact in the second half of the season. Yeah, exactly. Come round 11, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's sort of surprising to me. Some of these guys haven't been given more of a chance. So one of the guys I've been, uh, big on, but he finally did get a game this week, Mitch Owens for St Kilda. Um, but he's been right up there. I mean, he's 23 disposals, 13 contested possessions, five clearances and four tackles per game for St Kilda in his first year playing with them uh, in the VFL. So it was one of their top four midfielders. Um, sort of, you know, he played a few games with Zach Jones and a few of the older, older players that have played down there. Um, so yeah, he finally got a game on the weekend, but yeah, there's still a few others that are wandering around. Dylan Stevens for, uh, Sydney was, um, a first round pick. He paid the, played the first three rounds with the Swans, but, um, hasn't played since in the VFL. Yeah. 27 disposals per game. Last two weeks, he's had 67, so 30 and a 37, uh, six score involvements, which is sort of elite for his position. Um, he's also elite for disposals, uncontested possessions and marks. So again, just, um, Again, if I was a Sydney supporter, I'd be quite excited for the inclusion of Dylan Stevens in coming weeks. Um, Elijah Hollands is probably the big one for me, though. Again, a, a top three draft pick. Um, and again, I, I just feel like he's a bit of a victim of Gold Coast are probably going a bit better than they originally thought. So I would have thought if uh, you sat there in Febu- February or March this year and said, all right, Elijah Holland's going to average 23 disposals, 13 contested, five clearances, five score involvements, four tackles, um, and 10 ground ball gets per game. So he just he just wins it, you know, whenever and wherever he likes. You think, well, he has to be playing for Gold Coast, but we're still yet to see him. So I know there was... A little bit early in the season, I think it was just to get his engine up. You just need to get more games under his belt, more miles in the legs. Um, as I said, comes around 11 now and he's still producing. So surely he's, uh, you know, I think he's already made his debut, but surely his um, time to become a regular is not too far off. Mm. Um, and maybe he has it. I, was, I remember seeing Elijah Hollands. Might have been in a NAB, NAB Cup game or Amy Series game. But um, And another sort of two Tall guys taken from this year's draft. Mac Andrews, so another Gold Coast one. I was going to mention um, him. Yeah, eight intercept possessions, at? 2.1 intercept marks. So to average over two intercept marks is it's a phenomenal number. And to do that as a 19-year-old in your first sort of year um, is pretty good. So it's sort of, I think he it's the most intercept marks of anyone 21 or under in the VFL. Um, and then at the other end of the ground, Melbourne have probably got one sort of sitting there, Jacob Van Ruin. So again, I know Melbourne... They've got Wiedemann, who's leading the goal, who's high in goal kicking in the VFL. Mitch Brown um, kicks a bag um, whenever he plays. But they've got this Jacob Van Ruin as well, who's also averaging 2.1 goals, which is the you know top five for anyone 21 or under. Um, but again, just early days, only 10 games in, and this guy's already sort of kicking two goals a game, surrounded by guys like Wiedemann and Mitch Brown. You just think, well, he's got a, he's probably got a pretty... Uh, promising career ahead of him in the, in terms of the teams and the team he's with and the players he's learning off. Um, he can just get better in North. I've probably got one as well. So um, one of the 21 year olds that's above him for goals is Charlie Combin, uh, who's kicked 2.2 goals uh, per game this year. And just below them is Emerson Jecker for Hawthorne. So three um, 
three key forwards that are, you know, from the last three drafts or so that are still early in their careers that are showing, again, it's two goals per game at under 20s. It's it, not a lot of players are doing it. So these three players are doing it uh, each week. It's funny you talk about like some of these guys, you know, Mac Andrew at Gold Coast, um, just not getting an opportunity because it's a pretty tough defensive unit to break into at the moment, Jake. And you had some thoughts on on their defensive key pairings as well a bit earlier in this week when we were having a chat. Uh, yeah, well, no, no uh, spoilers or anything, but <laughs> I tell you what, Charlie Ballard, is he, is, is he in a, a, a lock for the mid-year All-Australian team? Well, you just said no spoilers and you've said exactly what we're thinking. <laughs> well, we haven't decided yet. So I'm no, just, haven't. I'm just sort of throwing the idea out there. Uh, they've been good Gold Coast. I think this is the best Gold Coast has ever looked without Gary Ablett in the side. And one could argue that in a couple of weeks time, they're on track for their first finals like problem is there's too many good teams and i think what were we saying 13 13 wins might be what you really need to be aiming for this year yeah to feel guarantees safe. you a birth doesn't it 13? um don't know they're going to win, win that many but they're they're really impressive gold coast Des, despite everything and despite all the negative talk and everything around Stuart Jew and the football club and players leaving and drafting and everything i, I think you've only got to admire what they've been able to do this year uh, speaking of uh, some negative outlooks and, and, and teams or players that have come back and had a second win, we were just having a chat before we went on air, Jake, about some players who we thought might have been done in their careers and have managed to kind of claw themselves back out and have some, some more productive time at AFL level. And um, Blake Akers, we look at the Dockers and, and what they've been able to do and, and how he's been able to perform. I think he's one that's, that's surely on that list and has been able to carve another niche out at AFL level. Yeah, there's a few of them uh, you guys will probably go through. But the big one for me and the player that I feel like I got most, I was just most wrong about for, for his whole career, maybe not so much in terms of his whole career, but certainly did not expect what he's been able to do the last couple of years was Travis Boak. I mean, if you look at his, um, I'd actually like to see Boak's, Boak's arc on those on those graphs he had before Christian. But, you know, he was really trending downwards. I mean, in, in all statistical areas, if you look, from season to season, he was trending down. I think, I think uh, about four or five seasons ago, he was almost, you know almost around sort of twenty touches a game, clearances a drop, tackles a drop, not kicking goals, just had sort of fallen off a bit of a cliff. But you only have to look at what he's been able to do the last couple of seasons. Um, you know, he's turned himself into, or, or put himself back into that elite midfielder category. He's spending a little bit of time forward and then gets thrown into the midfield, and he's a, an elite center center clearance player. So, yeah, I'd be the first to put my hand up and say I, I did not expect that turnaround from Travis Boat. The receipts are all over the internet for me, but I said Lance Franklin wouldn't make it to a 300 games. I said he wouldn't make it to 1,000 goals. I said he'd probably never play again when he was just battling injury week he, in, week he looked, out. To be fair, he looked cooked about three times, and he just he gets over the injury, and he comes back, and he dominates again. Last two weeks, he's been wheeling around from 60 on the left and just plonking him through. Like He, he looks like he's still 28. It's unbelievable. So, so Buddy's up there for me. Seb Ross had a bit of a renaissance, had a real rough time up in uh, up in the Gold Coast uh, and the Queensland hubs when the Saints were up there. But he's had a really good season, um, just kind of stepping up now that Jack Steele's out of that side, um, putting aside some off-field issues, which, are, you know, no need to get into them today. But Tex has had an on-field resurgence as well, you think, the last couple of years. Um, was kicking yeah, Tex is another one. Like, Tex is another one. I reckon similar sort of years to Boke where he started to just drop off and wasn't performing um, and his some of his games were awful, like four, 
four touches, couldn't get a goal and just no involvement at all. But yeah, he's, I mean, he, he's just turned himself around and, and you could see when he came back into the team earlier in the year, the first couple of games back, what an inclusion he was. Um, who knows Helps when he's, he's an accurate kick goal too. He is, he is. Who knows though? I mean, could he be on the, could he be on the move somewhere? Mm, he could well be. It's, he could be on the move. He could be on the move and join Levi Casbold, who's having a, a, a resurgence Levi, of sorts on yeah. his way to a career best return, Jake. Levi, yeah, yeah, he's been he has been good. But is that I don't know, is that more so, everyone else we've sort of mentioned, I mean, aside from Blake Akers, I think it's the players that have all been at the same club, at least through that that period of the drop-off and have been able to respond. Is Levi is Levi's strong year a change of scenery more so than just him having a bit of a career resurgence? Because it's not like he was ever a great player. No, but he's having a decent season. Christian, any any off the top of your head, any other names that that Uh, yeah, similar again, probably hasn't been around too long. But one that I just didn't know why they were investing so much trouble in was Tyson Stengel. Uh, Mm. Started at Richmond, went to Adelaide, didn't last at either of those two clubs, and I just thought, well. Clubs are chasing this guy pretty hard, but I, I just hadn't seen it. Credit to him. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? We're going to rush through these. We're a bit short on time. Uh, Jake, Essendon badly needed a review of their football department. Well, uh, I wish Rowan Connolly was on this episode to answer uh, this question because I have a feeling I know how he would answer. I'll say yes. I mean, you look at the two worst teams in the in the league right now, West Coast and North, they feel like they feel like they wouldn't be winning games in the VFL at this rate. They're, they're so bad. Essendon's third last. So you take those two out, and we go back to the 16-team cop that we used to have. Essendon's bottom of the ladder, as far as I'm concerned. And they do have a lot of off-field issues. And, you know, Rowan's spoken about it, and, and he's, he has written about it for us numerous times, what Essendon's issues are. So we won't go into, into it too deep. But, yes, it's, it's justified. It needs to be done. We've seen other clubs go through this sort of stuff too when they've hit their sort of lowest points. So it's not unusual, um, and I think it's needed. Cop-out for me is it's an internal review. Uh, Sean Wellman's going to be doing it, and I'm pretty sure he's very high up in the football department there. So, um, you know, yeah, good. you got to start reviewing somewhere. the positions. And, yeah, you're right. You do have to start somewhere. But I think fans who are a bit fed up with the entire, the, uh, the entire place would probably want uh, an external set of eyes and, overlooking things. And three uh, weeks ago, of, I think they came out and said they didn't want to review. So it's a very quick change of mind. It's an internal one. So, yeah, we'll see what comes out. <laughs> well, we'll see. Keeping on the bombers. Uh, Buddy deserved his week off, Jake. Speaking of Bud. Two in a row. Um, he didn't. He did not deserve a week off. He deserved about four weeks off. And I don't know how he only got one. I, look, all jokes aside, he's we. I love Buddy. He's a fantastic player. I think we all do. You know, the thousand goals. We spoke about it ad nauseum. What a freakish talent he is. And I hope when it's all said and done, he goes down as one of the seven greatest players of all time, which I think is would be well-deserved. Having said that, he has got away with a massive amount of, you know, on field, not off field, on field incidents, hitting people, whacking people, uh, just the amount of times that you see him do this sort of stuff. And then he goes, it goes to um, he, his penalty comes out and it's a fine or it is a one week suspension. He punched Trent Cochin in the face. He gets one week. I don't, I, the only difference between that and the, Andy Andrew Gaff, Andy Brayshaw was the broken jaw. It was the same amount of force. And Andrew Gaff got six weeks? Sure did. 
Um, I, I, I don't. I just couldn't believe he only got one. Now it's going to the tribunal. It's actually going to the tribunal on Wednesday night. I have just uh, right? I've just read. Yeah, so that's a little strange. Um, okay. So we'll have to wait and see what happens because he, he may get off. But he may get he may get a harsher penalty. I think that it would be more suited for a three to four week suspension. I think one is way too way too light for that. Christian, you looked at the numbers about buddy and and his free kicks against and he has given away by far the most number of free kicks in the modern era yeah so we go back to 99 with all of our stats and yeah he's 620 free kicks against uh in that time next most from any player is 464 which was scott thompson <laughs> that's and a 456 massive for so, but i feel like that's the that's why we love buddy He's not a robot. He plays with so much pain. Like I think we want imperfections from our stars, don't we? If he was a no, you know, never yeah, gave but away there's a free imperfections kick. Imperfections. I, I get what you're saying, but teammate, a punching opponent. In the I don't fight. think he's dirty. I think this all adds to why we love. But I think this adds to why he's one of the best players in the competition because he's not perfect. He's got that sort of. I don't know, I wouldn't call it clumsiness, but yeah, he can get, as I said, he's given away almost 200 more free kicks than anyone else, yet he's still one of the superstars of the game. If most other coaches would have yeah. dropped you if you yeah, just give away free I'm kicks. I'm sorry, but you can't, I remember that's that's the other thing. A couple of years ago, there were two or three incidents where they said, oh, it's just Buddy being clumsy. I'm sorry, you can't <laughs> kick a thousand goals in the AFL and just be clumsy. You know, how, you're not... um, how it was graded as, um, it wasn't graded as intentional. It was, yeah. it was graded as, uh, I don't understand the other word. Careless. 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 Uh, It wasn't careless. He intended to hit him. He swung his fist at his face. (laughs) I don't understand. We've got to wrap things up. Uh, We have run over time. Footy tips, get your tips in. Only six games this week. Six pretty good games though, Jake. Uh, Friday night, Dogs and Cats is going to be a ripper. Six Uh, great games, yeah. Fremantle, Brisbane, hidden in the Sunday twilight. Yeah, Brisbane, uh, Freo will be really good. I'm really looking forward to the Friday night game. I think the Bulldogs, Geelong, we kind of were all sitting here about two months ago sort of wondering... Will that Bulldogs curse strike where, you know, the team that got to the grand final, I uh, can't remember what the stat was, but didn't make, didn't make the lose by eight goals. Year. Yeah, mm. lose by eight goals. And, miss and it kind of looked like it would in, after the first four or five weeks. But to be fair, you know, they're, they're right back in the mix. And a win over the Cats on Friday night, they're starting to make another push for top four again. So huge game Friday night. Can't wait. Get your tips in. Uh, and uh, thanks, Christian. Thanks, Jake. We will speak to you all at home in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.